This episode is brought to you by betterplaceproject.org, our brand new website where you can stream all of our episodes, order some merch. We've got t-shirts, hats, coffee mugs, pandemic masks, you name it. You can also leave ratings and reviews. You can click the microphone and instantly send us a voice recording. You can even become a member of the Better Place Project tribe to get some free merch. Your help supports the show so we can keep bringing you world-class guests and two new episodes each week. So check it out at betterplaceproject.org. And now, enjoy the show. Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world I don't know about you, Aaron, but I am so stoked for today's episode. Yeah, we recorded this actually a couple of weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot since we had that conversation. Lots of interesting stuff that we talked about. Oh my gosh, you guys. If you enjoy the Dr. Rich Blundell episode, or Hema Vias, or Christian De La Huerta, these remarkable spiritual thought leaders that we've had on the show, you're going to love today's guest as well. And because we have so many things to cover, we're just going to jump right into it. Aaron, tell us who we have today. Mark Bunn has spent the last 30 years studying the ancient wisdoms of health, transcendence, higher consciousness, dharma, and the deeper mysteries of life. Mark's combination of modern and ancient systems of health provides a unique approach that simplifies the prevailing confusion in our lives. He now condenses all this into his popular keynotes, workshops, podcasts, and book titled Ancient Wisdom for Modern Health. And like you, Aaron, I also have been thinking about over the last couple of weeks since we did this interview, so many of the things that Mark talks about, and I've even gone back and listened to this episode a couple times, this conversation, and just so, as we mentioned, chock full of amazing stuff, and I'm still on a high from it, and so many things that I'm trying to work on and practice and all of these things after uh, after getting these suggestions from Mark. Mm-hmm. I liked this conversation because we discussed so many different things that are completely new to me, like living with a higher purpose and Eastern medicine. I was not really familiar or knowledgeable in any of that at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we could have talked to Mark for another hour if we could. Yeah, easily. Some of the things that we are going to talk about in this conversation, the science of Veda and how we can evolve as humans to a higher level of consciousness. We talk about what is dharmic living and like Aaron just mentioned, your higher purpose, how to find your purpose in life and the importance of that. And we go on to talk, as Aaron mentioned, Ayurveda and Eastern medicine, but also things related to that in the modern world, like intermittent fasting, ice baths, and some of these modern fads, and should we be doing them, should we not? And his interest, his answer on this was quite interesting. We talk about the consciousness revolution and the uprising of spirituality. We go into breath work and the impact that that can have on your life. We talk about how you can apply some of these ancient wisdoms to maximize business success in today's world. Mark shares with us what some of the world's healthiest, highest performers do differently than the rest of us. Uh, We talk about what he considers enlightenment to be. So just so many awesome things in this discussion. So without further ado, let's get to it. Our conversation with Mark Bunn. Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. 
Hello, Mark. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Steve. We're really looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. We are so excited to have you, and we have so many topics that we can't wait to chat with you about. So let's just dive right in. Can you start, Mark, with Vedic science? What exactly is it? Yeah, it's a, well, it's a lovely first question because it's uh, it's my background and training. And the word Veda basically means knowledge, but not knowledge of the external manifest world. That's the inner knowledge. It's actually literally translated as pure knowledge. And so when we think about life and we think about the universe, we all can appreciate there's an intelligence to how nature runs things from, you know, the movement of planets around the sun to how little babies born and it grows in a very systematic, orderly, intelligent way. And that intelligence is the really focus of Vedic science. So Veda, the pure knowledge, the knowledge of what we call the laws of nature, how the universe structures everything from a baby to a star to a cell to a universe. And so the science of Veda is just that, the science of everything from the smallest of the smallest to the largest of the largest. So it's comprehensive, it's universal, it's those eternal laws, how nature functions and how we as humans are designed to live in tune with that natural intelligence so that as humans we live a naturally healthy, abundant, vibrant, enlightened life. And that's the the pinnacle of Vedic science, that how do we evolve as humans to experience the highest levels of consciousness? How do we evolve to higher states of consciousness and live what the Vedic experts, the rishis, would say is our natural birthright, and that is the state of enlightenment, self-realization, that every day, 24 hours a day, is a blissful, um, peaceful, contented experience. So was there anything in particular in your life that led you down a path of wanting to study higher consciousness? I had a background as a professional footballer in Australia. Um, If any of your listeners have watched YouTube clips of Australian footballers running at full pelt without any helmets or padding and and smashing into each other. Not like us wimpy Americans (laughs) that put on all the big, thick helmets. Yeah, Uh, I wasn't going to use the term wimpy, but let's let's go there. (laughs) I will happen. Yeah. 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 So uh, that was my background. So I was motivated as a young young man to sort of be the best I could athletically. And and what I learned, particularly from my mother at around 16, 70 years, years of age, who gave me a book by Dr. Wayne Dyer on, you know, the whole sort of mental side of, things you've got to believe something before you'll achieve it so I got into that at 19 years of age in my first professional year I learned something called transcendental meditation which um, I absolutely loved and it gave me that sort of that silence and that sort of clarity and then the teacher who taught me TM then gave me a book on sport and and Vedic science so how you can use Ayurvedic medicine and an understanding of these natural cycles and the daily rhythms and the seasonal rhythms and different diets for different body types to improve athletic performance. And so so from there, that just sort of developed. I loved it. You know, the light bulb moment where you think, you know, there's more to life than just kicking a bit of leather around and getting your head mm-hmm. smashed in every week. And that <laughs> developed to a uh, an interest in studying Vedic science and uh, sort of the, the Eastern medicine. 
So if somebody wanted to explore this, explore their own consciousness and dip their toe into VEDA, what suggestions would you have for them to get started? The suggestion I'd have is actually the same way I did. And it's very interesting because um, the, the man who brought Transcendental Meditation out to the West was a man called Mahashi Mahesh Yogi. And he was a great Vedic scholar. We mentioned this term Rishi earlier. A Rishi in the Vedic tradition is, is a seer. It means a seer, someone who can see not through the, the eyes to the external world, but can literally see or recognize the laws of nature that govern life. So a Maharishi is a great Rishi. And so what Mahashi did, understanding this Vedic tradition of knowledge, what he found was that what was missing was the central part of Vedic science, and that is the direct experience of the deeper laws of nature or of consciousness. And so that's why he brought transcendental meditation out, because we don't just meditate. To meditate, we often think of, you know, we've got to be mindful, we've got to think about something, it's an intellectual process, or but to transcend means to go beyond. So he says we need to relearn the ability to take the mind beyond the active thinking levels of life, which all of us do, and experience the source of thought, consciousness. And so TM, in effect, is the first step into experiencing Vedic science because it's that direct subjective experience. And from there, we just naturally get a an interest, a pull into different directions. And I'm sure we're going to talk about Dharma at some point in the podcast and and for the listeners, you know, before the show, we are talking and Erin, um, you were saying how she just has this, from a very young girl, this desire to be a teacher and to, to write and to teach. And that that is Dharma. We call that the Dharma. It's our purpose in life. And, and this is, again, the essence of Vedic science. Mm -hmm. So for people wanting to get a taste of it, it's that idea of direct experience, meditation, transcendence, experience the self, which then fine-tunes that inner intuition, that gut wisdom, and then that draws us out into what what is our natural purpose in life. Are we a teacher? You know, are we a teacher for young children? Is it for older baby boomers? Is it, are we a mechanic? Are we a doctor? Are we a healer? And that's really the essence of Vedic science. Once you've got that, that direct experience of the self and that natural purpose, what you're naturally born to do, then everything else just flows. The analogy I use is it's a, like a river. You know, it's the river's strong and it's flowing. Everything that that river nourishes naturally gets nourished very effortlessly. So, um, yeah, that's how I sort of encourage people to start, really start with the, the fundamentals. A quote that I read once by uh, Paramahansa Yogananda who's a Hindu monk, Beautiful. wrote, you must not let your life run in the ordinary way. Do something that nobody else has done, mm. something that will dazzle the world. Show that God's creative principle works in you. Love that. And I love that quote. Yeah. And your purpose, whether it be, and if it's a school teacher, do something that no school teacher has ever done. Teach like no teacher with a passion that, that you know, like no teacher has ever done. And I totally agree. It's just such a beautiful quote. Mm, it is. So can we now do a little bit of a Dharma deep dive, if you will? Can you walk us through, Mark, the importance of Dharma, why it is so critical and 
Also, if you could shed some light on where Dharma fits within Ayurveda. So Ayurvedic medicine is, again, based on Veda. So it's knowledge of Ayus, which is life or lifespan. So Ayurveda is particularly focused on health and longevity. And so when we think of Ayurveda, or many people who have heard the term associate Ayurveda with with India and, you know, certain herbal medicines. But again, what Maharshi did was he really expanded the understanding of Ayurveda to the universal, eternal principles of life. So Ayurveda is actually not Indian, although India has kept the knowledge alive and we give great credit and thanks to to the Indian tradition. Ayurveda is a universal science. And so at, at its foundation, in order to be healthy and to live this fullest expression of our life, Dharma is at the basis. So I have a uh, a chapter in, a, in an upcoming book I call The Tree of Health, and it gives a visual representation of what we, where we put our attention on in terms of developing health. And, and the roots of the tree, which we can't see, is like nourishing consciousness. Mahashi actually says, to enjoy the fruit, water the root. So even though we can't see it, we can't see consciousness, that spiritual side of ourselves, we need to nourish that primarily. And the trunk of the tree is our dharma. It's that natural highest purpose in life, that if we're not living that, then everything's going to be creating stress. You know, it's like a school teacher, and I wrote about this in my first book. I had a a client, and she was a teacher, natural, beautiful teacher, young kids, but she would go out on the weekends with all her friends and all her friends, you know, they were buying new cars and they had all these fancy corporate jobs and these sort of high status jobs and they're making more money. And so she began to sort of question whether teaching was the right thing for her because, you know, money was, you know, was tight and she wasn't making as much as her friends and people didn't give as much recognition to a school teacher and same with nurses and caregivers today. And so she actually stopped teaching. She got into a corporate job. And as soon as she did, just massive stress, you know, it just wasn't her thing, you know, and she's always banging her head against the wall, trying to be something that's not her, just because of, of our societal um, view of things. And that's that's what we've got to correct collectively. So, yeah, Dharma's absolutely key. So Ayurveda puts Dharma really as, as front and centre. Once that's in place, like the river analogy, everything else flows. When we're in our dharma, we naturally are attracted to good relationships. You know, we tend to eat better. We want to look after ourselves through exercise and meditation. When we're not doing our dharma, when there's just stress at that deepest level, then naturally we tend to, you know, we might drink more and we'll do other things to try and manage that stress that maybe aren't so healthy. So dharma is key. So I think one lesson here is, if you find your purpose, what makes you happy, stick with it. And before I forget, the book that Mark just mentioned is called Ancient Wisdom for Modern Health, and you can find it on Amazon here in the U.S., and it's also available on his website at markbun.com.au. That's markbunn.com.au. Don't forget the AU because he is in Australia. So, Mark, how does Eastern medicine view things like ice baths and intermittent fasting, veganism, and some of the current fads that we are seeing nowadays? 
it's well it's one of the beauties of what i believe ayurveda and eastern medicine brings and that's what what i really loved when i read that book many years ago it was that it was the thing that really triggered me and it's the understanding of body types and that each one of us is uniquely composed of three basic governing principles in ayurvedic medicine we call them the doshas vata pitta kapha we won't get into the details today but we can think of it as the airy element the fiery element and the earthy element and so you think of yourself you think of your friends you think of your school teachers your parents each of them has a predominance of these three elements you know some we say oh steve he's such a fiery nature you know jennifer she's got such a sweet down-to-earth nature um tom he's got such an airy sort of bubbly nature and so depending on our unique body type we are predisposed to certain diets certain foods certain exercise certain jobs certain relationships that keep us in balance and other ones that take us out of balance so ice baths as one example can be phenomenal for the right person at the right time, as we know, in terms of reducing inflammation, you know, athletes, recovery from certain conditions. But if you have a, what we call a vata condition, which is an airy predominant body type, who is extremely sensitive to the cold, has very minimal body fat, you know, is suffering from migraines and various conditions, can't sleep, they're insomnia, for them to take ice baths can be absolutely disastrous. It throws that vata, that governing principle, out even more, and it can be really, really problematic. So everything in Ayurveda is designed to be done gradually. So in terms of cold therapy, for example, for, for one of those types, they would do it very, very gradually, very gradually. For someone who has a hot body type, and most of the people who promote ice bars wim hof perfect example i love wim hof he is a font of knowledge the breathing he talks about and he does recommend gradual exposure to the cold but wim That's hof great. is a classic example of a a predominant pitta body type very very you know strong um heat body type anthony robbins you know um Nicole Kidman, the the top Hollywood actresses, and they're they're often very pitta because that what gives them the drive and the motivation to succeed. And they write the self help books, and they're the motivational speakers. And so, what's right for them is not necessarily always right for others. So the beauty of the Eastern wisdom and the Ayurvedic medicine, for example, is that the first step in Ayurveda is who am I? It's not what's wrong with me. Or what do I want to achieve? It's who am I? Unless we understand what our nature is, our proportion of these fundamental governing principles, then we don't know what diet's going to best heal us, what exercise, whether ice baths are the best thing for us or whether we need hot saunas, for example. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful foundation for to just give us that very pinpoint accuracy and, and this is what modern medicine finds many yeah. decades later personalized medicine you know 
bio-individuality are terms we're starting to hear, which is all about the science of making diet and exercise and health suitable for the individual. That's interesting that you brought that up because you're right, we're all so diverse and medicine shouldn't be like a one, medicine and diet shouldn't be a one size fits all type of deal. Uh, we all have different bodies. So something exactly. that would work out great and be perfect for somebody else may not necessarily be great and perfect and work out for myself. So yeah, that's very important. Absolutely. And that goes the same for intermittent fasting, I'm assuming as well, not necessarily one size fits all either. Definitely. So the thing with fasting is fasting is the wisdom, the ancient wisdom of it is that it's it's fantastical. Animals that are sick will do two things. They'll rest and they'll fast. And so humans, when we are unwell, one of the best things we can do is just reduce our food intake and, and fast. And so from time to time also as a way to detox and clean out, Restricting food intake is very, very healthy generally. But again, we have different body types. So for those that are at the, we call the earthy body type, in Ayurveda, kuffers, they put on weight easily, slow metabolism. For them, more extended fasting, you know, the 16-hour windows of an intermittent fast, very, very healthy, generally speaking. But for those at the other, other end of the spectrum, we call them the vata types, you know, airy and space predominant, you know, very, very anxious, can get worried quickly, don't sleep well, um, migraines when they're out of balance. For them, any form of fasting, very, very, can be dangerous, you know, because they're already, they're away in the, they're up in the clouds, you know, they're off with the, the, the fairies. They need grounding and they need that food mm -hmm. to nourish them and bring them down. And so, the way to really get to the essence of it, if people listening and they're not quite sure what body type they are and how much they should fast and not fast, is what we call self-referral wisdom. And throughout all the traditional cultures, all the long-living cultures, the Eastern traditions, they have different names for it, whether it's, you know, the gut wisdom, intuit, intuition. In Ayurveda, it's called self-referral wisdom. And it's that our bodies are intelligent. And it's telling us in every moment what we need to do and so if you're not sure about intermittent fasting we just go with the body you know go without food 10 hours 12 hours wake up in the morning are you really really hungry yes have some food according to how hungry you are if you're not keep fasting and so over time we start to just develop this inner wisdom and it will tell us you know what intermittent fasting regime is right for us. And Erin, you mentioned before how we're all different, but it's not only just um, within individual body types we're different, but with the seasons. So the other aspect of these traditional wisdoms in Ayurveda is not just daily cycles. There's a deep understanding of the 24-hour clock and how we cycle through the day, but also the seasons. So what fasting regime or what ice bath regime is appropriate in summer might be completely different to what's appropriate in winter. But again, our bodies compute all of that. The infinite wisdom of our body and our cellular matrix takes all that information in without us having to intellectualize it, and it gives us the printout. Do we feel 
Energized for exercise? Yes, go and exercise. Do we feel tired? Have some rest. Are you are we hungry? Eat some food. Not hungry? Don't eat. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really that simple when we when we peel away all the layers. Listen to our bodies. Mm. Absolutely. Can we chat a little bit about, because this keeps coming up with so many thought leaders that we've had on the show when we're talking about things like self-help and, and, and growth and that sort of thing, and that is the conscious consciousness revolution. And, mm. you know, I, I look at this and I think, you know, we used to think humans used to think the earth was flat and, yeah. and anybody that thought otherwise, they, they hung them and, you know, killed them or they threw them in jail. And it's so, it's so easy for us to say now, wow, they were really, really clueless a few hundred <laughs> years ago or a few thousand years ago. And, and the more I look on it, that, that, you know, I, I find myself asking myself, what are we clueless about now? That 500 years from now or 2,000 years from now, will people look back and think, oh my gosh, they were. And I think consciousness is one of those. And, and so, are you seeing and what are your thoughts then on the consciousness revolution that's taking place? Yeah, well, I think it's always really good, as you touched on then, Steve, is to, is to look back in time. And we get very caught up in our own immediate world. But of course, you know, 100 or so years ago, we had the agricultural revolution the agricultural age where farming was transformed. And then we went through the industrial age where we had machines to do what manual labor did and it created a massive transformation in the way we, we lived. And then we went through the computer age, you know, technology, technological age where computers started to do things. Many experts say today we're just coming out of the information age. And so information is less tangible, it's less concrete. You actually can't tie it down or pin it down. And so now many say we're coming into the age of imagination, you know, this revolution in, away from just information, but opening up the higher channels of awareness that we can imagine new realities for life. And, and all of this is based on what Vedic science would say is consciousness, because consciousness is the fundamental level of life. That's essentially the deepest self in an individual level. And then we have a collective consciousness. All the units of society of the world have an individual consciousness, which is, of course, at the deepest level, nothing other than one universal, unbounded ocean of consciousness. And so when society starts to live according to that level of life, the consciousness revolution, which I believe, and as you touch on, many other experts around the world are suggesting, then life is going to get to the most amazing new levels. When consciousness is the is the day-to-day -day reality, then anything is possible. We can create what in Mahashi used to call heaven on earth. You know, 30-odd years ago, he predicted that in the coming years, we're going to have heaven on earth, which is majority of people on the planet in higher states of consciousness where, as you said, when 100 years ago, the idea of flying in an aeroplane from one side of the world to the other was just fanciful. You know, turning on something, a little button in your living room that would then show you a tennis match on the other side of the world, something called a television, was just, you'd be locked up in an institution. So now when I say, you know, in coming decades, we can be literally 
levitating and flying from one side of the world to the other and being in two places at once, what they call bilocation, what the ancient yogic um, teachers would call cities, you know, these perfections of mind-body intelligence that just thinking something, we can achieve it and do it. What the mind thinks, the body does. So just as Mark was talking so eloquently about the consciousness revolution and how in the coming years we can potentially be able to be in two places at once, the universe decided to send me a little reminder that I apparently have a long way to go in my consciousness journey, and I lost my internet connection with Aaron and Mark, who is in Australia. So I reconnected to the call, we had a big laugh at my awful timing, and we picked up our conversation moving on to the topic of longevity. If we could shift gears just a little bit, because I have so many things on my list of things that I want to talk to you about today, Mark. This is something that I saw in one of your speeches that really intrigued me. What are some of the secrets that you've discovered of the world's healthiest, longest living people? Yeah, I love this question because I was I was really, really touched when I began researching these cultures and i know you've looked into the blue zones steve you know and i've uh exactly, i really yeah. love the work of john robbins who looked at cultures around um you know southern russia the um and the ecuadorians and uh obviously the okinawans and and i think people are fairly familiar now that you know obviously some of the key secrets are just this this what we could call natural living you know they're they're not in busy, polluted cities, so obviously their water and their food are, are very natural and clean. But what I always like to bring out in answer to this question is two of the sort of less, often less well publicized, and it's to do with the mind-body connection. And of course, we know with aging and longevity, it's not just obviously good food and exercise and all the things where we sort of, I think, generally know anyway. But it's it's stress, you know, these big cities and traffic and pollution, it's it's a very stressful way of living. And and the other part of it is just our capacity to be in the moment. And so the two big differences that I always like to bring out are one is 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 the sense of community. And so in these cultures, the family unit, you know, that sense of the village and the community is just it's paramount, you know, whereas we... Having you know, those social connections, absolutely. absolutely. And there's so much research on it on it now, and I'm sure you've been through it so many times with your your listeners, but it just, it's really worth just repeating and repeating and repeating because I know, you know, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, but in Western countries, you know, we have family units that one child's in America and the other one's in London and, you know, the parents, are, one parent's here and one parent's there and we wonder why we're so stressed and where these communities, it's just that, togetherness and it just it dissolves the stress you know even the hardships that they endure and it's not they're not perfect lives by any means but that 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 sense of community and the social connections just the research shows it just it just helps us dissolve that stress and the other big one is how they view the aging process so again in the west how do we view aging well we have this negative exactly it's inbuilt yeah. negativity the older we get what's the perception 
the less relevant, the less respected, the less valued we are. We've got to try and hide the wrinkles. We've got to do everything we can to fight the aging process. So the inbuilt system is, as I get older, more stress, you know? And so whereas in these cultures, in these long-living cultures, the older you get in your community, the more revered you are, the more venerated you are, the more loved you are for your wisdom. You take on the role of, you know, imparting that wisdom and knowledge to the younger generations and the younger generations look up to the elders. And so there is, there's none of that stress. In fact, it's the opposite. So the, the sort of inbuilt motivation is for longer life. And so this is something we really have to try and Get in and it and it's coming, you know. Again, this we talk about the consciousness revolution. Part of that is that there's now conferences and forums around the world about how we change the whole view of aging and as we get older. So I think that's an, another really big one. Yeah, and I think we need to remind ourselves that studies show worldwide that generally the happiest people on the planet are 70 plus years old. Yes. So so why should we be so afraid to, to get to 70 and 80 and 90? We should be thankful and grateful mm-hmm. that we're still alive at that age and still able to enjoy life and enjoy our grandkids and, and so forth. In fact, I, I, I love a, you mentioned a joke, and this may be a couple years old, so let's see if you even remember your own punchline. <laughs> and this is related to age. You said, you know, you know you're getting old when your partner says, "Darling, come upstairs and make love." And you say, "What's the what's the punchline?" Pick one. I can't do both. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There's I another one that. actually. There's another one that says, "You know when you're getting old when you feel like the morning after, and you haven't had the night before." <laughs> <laughs> you only get the punishment. You don't get the fun. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah. But but there was another interesting point that that you made about some of these people around the world that that are living longer. And that is almost without fail, these are cultures that don't don't know the first thing about body fat or mm. cholesterol or all the things that we obsess about in our culture about being healthy so we can live longer. It doesn't even enter into their consciousness mm. in some of these other regions. Yeah, I, I usually start my Keynote talks when I speak at conferences, that's my my opening line is, you know, how much do the longest living, healthiest cultures in the world know about good fats, bad fats, low-carb diets, glycemic index, antioxidants? And the answer is, go. you know, as much as I know about a good hair day, which if people can't see me, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm bald. So, uh, uh. and it's a big fat, it's a big fat zero. And they, they yeah. abs- do know absolutely none of it. And that's, there is, the deeper message to it is exactly what you're, I think, trying to point towards, Steve, is that we can get too caught up in the superficial levels of knowledge and life. And so what they know intuitively is there's natural laws of life and there's a deeper wisdom and there's a flow to life. And as the sun comes up in the morning, they greet the sun. They do ancient rituals often in many cultures called sun gazing which enlivens the mood to start the day and creates the right neurochemistry that actually sends them to sleep at the end of the night without worrying about it. They have their main meal in the middle of the day when the sun's at its peak and when the sun goes down at night, they connect with their loved ones and they sing and they dance and without the artificial lighting, they go to sleep with nature's rhythm and they wake up fresh and it just it's natural. So health is a natural byproduct. 
of living in tune with with nature. And so often I say the best thing people can do is just shut down the computer, stop listening to the experts, close the magazine and just go out in nature, go camping and you know that those biological rhythms will actually be reset and they'll be much healthier than knowing every little latest latest scientific study from the you know Journal of American yep. Medical Association or wherever it is. So uh, yeah, we overcomplicate things sometimes. In fact, to support some of the things you just mentioned about the importance of having social connections, social ties in your life, you know, correlating to living a longer life, there was a study way back in the 80s. There's a huge retirement area here in Southern California called Leisure World. Well, they did a very comprehensive, and I think it was like 20 to 30,000 people that were in their 60s to, you know, 90s or what have you, and asked them in this community, very comprehensive, uh, so many questions about how much do you exercise? Do you have an alcoholic beverage once or twice a day? If so, uh, do you go to social events in your community? How many friends do you have? Do you have family that you spend time with? If so, how much? And these records just sat there forgotten for about 30, 35 years. Well, about nine or 10 years ago, they found all these records and started going through all of them. And it was 60 Minutes did a whole story on this. 60 mm. Minutes, a big show here in America. I don't know if they have that down in Australia, Mark, but yeah. they did a, a fascinating story on this that I think you would, you would find interesting because they were able to go through and look at all these people back in the 80s, what their activities were every single day. And who was still alive now mm. that they were, or, or when did they die? Did they die at 85? Did they die at 75? Did they die at 90? But many of these people were still alive. And so many of the things that you talk about, the ones that got out and had uh, friendships and strong relationships with their community, the ones that, believe it or not, having an alcoholic beverage did work in your favor. We all hear that red wine yeah. is healthier <laughs> for you, but no, it didn't matter. You could have a, a, a shot of whiskey every night and you live longer. Yeah. Obviously, the cigarette smokers died off immediately, but was one thing that was counterintuitive that surprised them is that if you had, as you got older into your mid to late 70s, into your 80s, if you had a few extra pounds on you, mm. you live longer. So there are things like that. Slightly overweight, you actually live longer as you got older. So my yeah. new goal is just to make it till I'm 65 and then just enjoy Krispy Kremes every day. So <laughs> that's my new plan. <laughs> yes. I uh, love it. Yeah, well, that's, it's a beautiful study, and it's, it's uh, backed up by, as I understand it, the longest study on health and well-being ever conducted, which is a study at Harvard, which has been ongoing for 75 years now. They've actually had four, four different directors. Um, and a similar thing, they went back um, from the 1920s, I think it was, um, two groups of men, one from low socioeconomic in the Boston tenements and one from Harvard, so higher socioeconomic. And they basically followed them, been following them for 75 years and interviewing their spouses and partners and families and and exactly the same finding that it wasn't blood pressure, it wasn't cholesterol, it wasn't, you know, the diet. The main thing that conferred the greatest benefit to their longevity was the quality of their relationships. It's a huge takeaway for us all. Nurture those friendships, nurture those relationships, spend that time with family. 
You mentioned a moment ago nature, and I hadn't planned on talking about nature today, but since you brought it up, can you elaborate a little bit more on your thoughts on our connectivity to nature? Because that's another theme that just keeps coming up in our podcast with so many thought leaders like yourself. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm, I'm, funnily enough, looking at bringing out a new keynote in the new year, and it's called Connect, and the two ends of Connect apply to the two levels of this what we call this idea of nature or nature connection and one is one is the actual cycles of nature so most people talking about nature connection today talk about a very important part which is just being in nature you know when we're in a natural environment with trees and flowers and plants we get a multitude of benefits the soil itself has its own microbiome we're all hearing about the importance of our gut microbiome today. So people that do a lot of gardening or spend a lot of time in nature, we actually interchange good bacteria with with the soil and with that environment. So it strengthens our gut, which then obviously strengthens our whole mental health. Um, the trees and the plants emit certain aromas and scents, which instead of going to the health food shop and spending money on our little essential oils, we get free of charge yeah. when we're in a natural environment. Uh, doctors today in Scotland can actually prescribe instead of a pharmaceutical pill they can prescribe their patients just simply spending time in nature as a wow. healing modality in japan they have what's called shinrin yoku which um, you've probably discussed before which is basically forest bathing it's the the therapeutic benefit of just being near a tree or a natural environment to reduce blood pressure and improve mood and a whole host of whole thing in fact in japan now they have the government have instituted um, 68 what they call therapeutic woods. So they're little little tracks of forests that people can just go in to heal. They don't have to do anything. They just they heal naturally. When we actually take our shoes and socks off in something called earthing or grounding, we sure. connect to Mother Nature, the earth itself. We literally get an influx of negatively charged ions that flood the the body and the lining of the tissues and help dampen out the inflammatory fires. Inflammation, yeah. Massive. Yeah. So so this is just being connected to nature. Sunlight, there's a study just done recently, Monash University in Melbourne, where they looked at 400,000 people, mainly in, in Europe and the UK. The more we are exposed to natural light, as opposed to being indoors, exposed to artificial light, significant reductions in depression, depressive medications, improvements in mood, um, better quality of sleep, less insomnia. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's so simple and it's just, you know, when we hear it, it makes sense, but we mm. often don't do it because we're indoors so much. And so that's nature connection. And the second part is really the, the wisdom of things like Ayurvedic medicine and the Eastern traditions, which we haven't fully grasped yet from modern science. And it's the actual intrinsic cycles and rhythms of nature. And so modern science in the last decade have started to touch on this and they call it chronobiology or circadian medicine. So it's not just what we do, but when we do it. And of course, Ayurveda has known about this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it's when we get the exposure to natural light and darkness when we eat our main meal of the day do we eat it in the middle of the day when the sun's at its peak which you know as is the macrocosm so is the microcosm 
we are connected. So our internal sun, our digestive fire can cook that food and digest it as we're designed rather than eating our main meal late at night, which many people still do in our Western cultures. So these are the two real key foundations, just getting outside, you know, natural light, sun exposure, earthing, fresh air, fresh water, and then this this corresponding idea of just starting to change when you do things within your daily routine so that you ride the natural daily clock. I call it, you know, being like a surfer. The analogy I use is, is a surfer. You know, if you catch a wave at the right time, the experience for the surfer is it's fun. It's enjoyable time of their life. Mm-hmm. If you surf like me and you catch the wave when the wave's <laughs> crashing on your head, then it's not much fun at all. Not, not so fun. No. And that's life. That's exactly life. In our Western culture, particularly, we don't we do everything at the wrong time, basically, and that's why we often get so much stress and so much chronic illness and so much insomnia. And and we need to we need to switch that around so we start swimming with the currents of life, and then life changes and things flow, and we uh, we remit a lot of these these problems. Yeah, and on the the nature as well. I've had a couple experience as well exposure to our connectivity also to animals just just recently Mm. and one was a story that was brought to my attention that i i loved this story so much that we just launched a feel good friday where every tuesday we drop our our full guest uh, podcast but on fridays now we're doing just a short little episode, a five to 10 minute story. That's a feel good story about, it could be something that happened a hundred years ago or whatever, but something that is just a good, positive, uplifting story. And we told the story about Lawrence Anthony, who was an environmentalist and he was known as the elephant whisperer in South Africa. In fact, he wrote a book called the elephant whisperer. And many years ago, he was asked to take over this rogue herd of elephants that essentially hated humans because they had been sh- shot at and poached and killed. And, and every time they tried to protect them on a, on a wildlife uh, preserve that they would uh, reserve, they would, you know, pass through the fences and sneak out. And so they kept mm. this, they asked this Lawrence Anthony to take in these elephants and, and he did. And it was, he talks about how rough it was to earn their trust and over time, he not only earned their trust, but he earned their friendship. Well, flash forward to 2012, he suddenly dies of a heart attack. The elephants are miles away. They all of a sudden started doing single file procession. They walked for 12 hours to his house wow. to, and then spent two days holding vigil around his house in honor of him. I love it. I heard this story and I thought, I got to find out if this is true. And I went down a whole rabbit hole of research and find out about the book and found all the articles that are written about it. But yeah, it, it, the connectivity, a man's heart stops beating and these elephants miles away knew that he had gone and marched to go pay homage to his family. Just, just an amazing story. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Well. The other story that I had has to do with our next topic that I would love to talk just a little bit about breath work, which is also something that just in the last couple of years, I was, my sister turned me on to Wim Hof and I've read a few books on breath work as we talked about before the show today. And I did a breath work called a three part breath this last summer. And 
they tell you to do it for about 30 minutes and it's very intense. And it specifically says in this book that's written by Andrew Smart that, uh, that pay attention to nature after you do this exercise. And this, I've, I won't go into detail about it because I talked about it in a previous podcast, but, but it was just an amazing experience of doing this breath work for 30 minutes. I was completely in an altered state. I, I had to lay there for 20 minutes and just sheer joy and elation when I was done with it. And I stood up and I couldn't even walk. I was like I was a drunken sailor. And, and so I had to stand there and hold on to a desk and, and before I could walk. And, and I was so excited, I wanted to go tell my sister who was outside. So I go out of the bedroom where I had been laying down on a yoga mat, and I'm walking across her house. And she has two cats, one that's the nicest cat in the world, and the other cat that wouldn't give me the time of day, pretty much hated my guts. Well, I'm walking across the house after doing this meditation, and this cat comes prancing over to me, the mean one, and and is is like reaching up on my lap, on my leg, and I sit down on the floor, and the cat just crawls onto my lap and is just purring away and just couldn't get close enough to me. I had this amazing moment with this cat that for the previous 10 days visiting my family wouldn't give me the time of day, but coming out of going into this relaxed state, it just made me realize what energy are we putting out there that the animal, that that we're blocking out through our distractions of life that the animals are all tuned into. And later that night, I returned to the book, and at the end of the chapter, it says that after doing this breath work, pay attention to how nature and animals react to you in the hours and days afterwards. Mm, I love it. Yeah, well, just while I'm on the same train, before we get into breath work, the other really interesting one, which listeners may have heard before, is is how they're now using animals um, in nursing homes, um, obviously just for the morale and that sure. sense of connection, but very often they're finding that when one of the elderly residents um, develops cancer or some life-threatening illness, that the the resident pet will actually go and sit outside their front door. So if their door's open, they'll go and lie at the end of their bed um, well before the actual diagnosis is revealed in a medical sense, you know, before the doctors have actually picked it up, you know, they then look back and realize that the the dog had been sleeping on the end of that patient's bed for, you know, a few weeks beforehand. And so they're actually able to pick up, you know, cancer and things well yeah. before uh, we do. Amazing. Fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, and the, the whole idea of breath is really, really fascinating. And again, there's, there's two parts. You mentioned breath work, which is, we'll get to in a moment, but just the idea of breath itself, of course, traditionally the great yogic um, masters would talk about breath being, of course, the connection between mind and body. We speak about breath in the West, as you know, you've got to take in oxygen and we get rid of carbon dioxide. But the deeper wisdom was this idea of, of prana or life force, which is really the essence of of life. We can't live without prana. And, and I first came about it again through Ayurveda, and I was, heard the story of the Tarahumara Indians, which I, again, wrote about in my first book in terms of exercise. And they're, they're a tribe in sort of southern Mexico, and there was these stories of these great runners who could run for days on end and actually got invited to a, a top 
endurance race in America, um, hundred mile race in Leaderville, Colorado, and uh, you know they would offer them the latest Nike runners, and they didn't want them. They cut their little shoes out of tractor tires, and they wore their traditional dresses instead of the latest run, uh, latest running gear, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. They ate their cornmeal instead of Gatorade, and da da. Anyway, long story short. You know, at the start of the race, they're miles and miles behind. But over the 100-mile race, you know, up sort of mountains and over mountains, and they gradually pick up and pick up. And by the end of the race, the first winner is a 55-year-old um, Tarahumara Indian called um, Victoriano. And his heart rate and his blood pressure are lower than when he started the race. And, you know, oh my doctors gosh. who doctors who monitor them at the end of the race said, you know, he, they basically could have turned around and, run right back and so the deeper wisdom is that because they they train differently they actually don't train from no pain no gain which we do in the west uh-huh. it's just their way of life since they're three and four and five years old they they run long distances and they breathe differently so there's no stress it's actually all their games their traditional village games are around kicking little balls for hours on end so it's it's the fun and the play is built into exercise but also the key point is the way they breathe and the way they breathe is is deep nasal breathing this yogic breathing where they you know use the abdominal muscles on the exhalation that lowers the heart rate and integrates mind and body and we won't go into all the details so the first step for people where this whole idea of breath work is new to them is just learning to close their mouth and you touched on even before the show, Steve, this, you know, the studies in, in James Nestor's book, Breath, about, you know, in Stanford University, just in terms of sleep apnea and snoring and all the problems associated with that can significantly be overturned just by getting people to close their mouth when they sleep at night. And so the nose is just the most fascinating organ. It just it filters the air, the little cilia in our nose filter out the the air so the toxins don't get into the the lungs the rich mucous membrane and the blood supply warm and humidify the air so it's in the perfect state for oxygen exchange when we involve the abdominals you know we breathe out all the waste products the bottom of the heart gets massaged where the parasympathetic nerve is which reduces heart rate we get mind body integration this these sort of higher states of experience you know these zone states and runners high which Ayurvedic medicine would say is the is the natural purpose of exercise. We're designed to have a zone experience every time we exercise, not once in a lifetime. And breathing plays a really key role in that. So that's one is just breathing more through the nose every day. Go for a walk in the car, watching the television, just deep, slow nasal breathing. And then breath work develops from that, which is, as you've touched on, specific sort of techniques, you know, the Wim Hofs, the, the Tummo breathing, sure. various things that you can use to, um, you know, reduce anxiety, to, to increase the physiology towards activity, to make you more resistant to the cold weather, on and on it goes. And even, even this idea of transcendence, you know, you spoke about this, I think the word you used was sort of exhilaration or... Mm-hmm. Um, and so breathing has has traditionally also been used as a as a way to access these deeper levels of consciousness or awareness. And so, you know, meditation. Yeah, and one of the things that I had not heard 
regarding just the regular breathing, and I, I believe this came out of the James Nestor book, uh, where you talk about, yeah, the plugging of the nose that you just mentioned, that if they go, you know, I think they went 10 days, did they? Uh, 10 days with their nose plugged, and they had all kinds of issues, you know, negative ramifications from not breathing through their nose, and then spent 10 days, like you said, where he literally taped his mouth shut and and while they slept. And all of a sudden, they were not snoring. Uh, they were not having headaches. Uh, they um, they were having zero issues of sleep apnea, whereas before they were. So, but then the other thing that you talked about that I had not heard is that we should, in our everyday lives, be breathing slower. I believe they said like five or six times per minute. And there was even an exercise where you said, "Hey." time yourself while you breathe, and we should be slowing down our breathing in our everyday life. Does that ring a bell, or am I way off base here? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and again, uh, the James Nestor book is is really fabulous with um, a lot of that stuff also. I, I don't tend to necessarily believe we have to get into, you know, timing breath and having it exactly, you know, 5.5 breaths a minute was the where a lot of the science came about that was it studies the five in, and a half breaths a minute exactly in uh, Italy where they were researching and again a, a lot of this stems from sort of now an understanding of what had been done for thousands of years you know the the yogic masters we all think of the you know the, the yogi sitting in the cave and the and the studies that have done more recently where you get the Tibetan monks and they're you know drying out wet blankets put on them in a few minutes because they can raise their body temperature and, and a lot of that's just done through through breathing but yes slowing down the breath is is really paramount which is why that the simple instruction of you know anxiety when we feel stressed we feel anxious what do people say just take a deep breath relax yep. so what we want and this is a key thing is not necessarily so much a deep breath as in <gasps> you know we think of that deep breath we actually think one we always want it through the nose and we want it slow and deep as in deep as if we're filling up the belly not sort of this sort of um, deep gasping type breath and so yeah the research actually showed that um 5.5 breaths a minute which actually corresponds very interestingly to about five and a half seconds inhalation followed by five and a half seconds exhalation. You do that, you actually end up taking about five and a half breaths each minute. And as you said, corresponded to just, you know, significantly less levels of anxiety, elevated mood, uh, heart rate normalized, all that sort of sort of thing. So that's a really good um, breathing technique. Just people can, people can do it for one or two minutes a day when they've got little breaks in, in work or little intervals in there daily routine yeah. just just sitting and coming back to the breath and as i said I, it doesn't have to be exactly five and a half seconds um and when you look at and i think james nestor again went to a lot of this um in his research that you look at like the ave maria the chanting in a lot of sacred traditions whether it's christianity or buddhism often they'll have this pattern of six seconds of chanting where they chant the verse, the rosary in the Catholic tradition, um, a lot of the um, kundalini yoga seconds, and the congregation follows. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really good um, breathing 
simple one just to sort of reconnect, rebalance uh, throughout the day. That's nice. Yeah, I'm going to have to try that. While you were talking, I was like trying to practice my breathing too, just exactly how you were describing mm. it. <laughs> I was doing the same thing and I'm thinking, gosh, I better go back and listen to the tape. It probably sounds like heavy breathing in my microphone. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're all just breathing. The same thing. Exactly. Uh, Mark, can you, speaking of breathing, there was another exercise that you did that I found fascinating with regard to breathing through the nose. And it starts with, can you walk our listeners through this exercise where you st you stick your tongue out as far as you can? Mm, yeah, this is a really fascinating one. Again, it has, has its roots in a lot of the ancient traditions. And it's, it's particularly good for those who may not be aware of whether they breathe through their nose or through their mouth. So I want all your listeners um, to do this now. So Take away any distractions if you're doing two things at once and just follow the instructions very closely. And I want, want you all to now just stick out your tongue. So open your mouth wide, stick out your tongue as far as you can. And then see if at the same time, while keeping the tongue out, extended as far out of the mouth as you can, see if you can breathe through your nose at the same time. Just try that now. And, and what is the benefit of this? How, how does this help you? Uh, the benefit is really uh, for myself, um, you, Steve, and for Erin, just picturing all your <laughs> listeners sticking their tongue out of their mouth for absolutely no benefit whatsoever. <laughs> all right. Sorry about that, listeners. We owe you a big apology. Um, um, but Mark pulled that on me. <laughs> I actually was listening to one of his, his uh, recordings and uh, on a podcast. And, I, you know, of course, he had me do three or four exercises before this. So I'm just going right along blindly. And I've got my tongue totally stuck out. And then he says, uh, you know, try to breathe through your nose. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I can breathe through my nose with my tongue all the way out. I guess I'm good. This is great. And then he says, the benefit of this is you look like a fool sticking your tongue out uh, in traffic or wherever you are. So anyway, I so thought great. that was hilarious. You got to so. have a sense of humor with that. And plus, you know, you have so much credibility too, which makes all that really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you took it. You took it to your advantage, uh, Mark. You're taking advantage of this credibility that you have of being an expert in your field of getting people all over the world sticking out their tongues now. So. Yeah, it would just be good if we had some vision yeah. of, uh, of it, or uh, or family members looking at their their loved ones doing it and thinking, "What the hell are they listen to?" Exactly. Here? Well, hey, we're running. Yeah. Uh, we're we're just about out of time, so we've just got a couple last quick questions I wanted to get to, if we could, because I love this question. What do the world's healthiest high performers do differently than the rest of us? Mm. It's been an interesting study of mine for uh, about a decade, because um, what I I was in the corporate world. Obviously, when you're a speaker, you have to you know most of the work's in the corporate field. They so they want translated the the wisdoms of health and what the longest living, healthiest people do, but in a in a corporate, a business and achievement sort of focused way. And so what's really come out is this idea we touched on right at the start of the podcast, which is is transcendence. Um, some research suggests that 80% of the world's highest performers either practice transcendental meditation or mindfulness meditation on a daily basis and a very high percentage of them suggest that that practice that practice to just be with themselves to transcend to connect with it that source 
is the number one factor in their success. And you think of Oprah Winfrey's, Tim Ferriss's, you know, just you could, I could sit here for half an hour naming names of similar people that meditation, that idea of just being with the self, you know, busiest, busiest people on the planet, but they take that time away from the employees and the management group and the rest of their life to just to enliven that self. Did you say 80% mark? 80%, eight zero. Yeah. Wow. So, um, wow. and the, the other one I think is always good. And it's, I mean, it's, it's done the rounds in self-development books and motivational speakers for a hundred years, but we lose sight of it. I think we get so busy, we lose track and it's, it's clarity of purpose and doing the 20% that delivers 80%. Anyone who's ever been in business over the last decade or two will know about the Pareto principle. You know, what's the 20% of what you do yeah. that delivers 80-20 rule? And everyone knows it, but a lot of people still don't actually do it. Or they, you know, we do it for a few days, we do it for a week, and then it sort of loses. But just it's all about cutting or pruning the excess, you know, those activities that just we get busy, but we're not productive. So we transcend, we get that clarity in our awareness, what's our dharma, what's our purpose, be really clear on that. And then we just sit down, go through the 10 or 12 activities that we do on a daily daily basis, thinking that we're achieving that goal. And then if we had a red pen, we could only circle two or three of those activities. We couldn't do all 10 of them. We could only do two or three of them. Which activities would they be? They're our, they're our 20% activities. And the more we can do those, that's where that idea of what we can do, that yoga Parahamansa Yogananda quote, what we do differently to everybody else. You know, what's our unique contribution? Yeah. That's our dharma. That's uh, that's what they do better than, than most others. Love it. And one related question that I want to sneak in here real quickly because I love this question too. What do you consider enlightenment to be and is it practical for normal everyday people? Mm. Well, before uh, I learned Tim and, and I got to listen to a lot of um, Mahashi Mahashyogi speak, I would have thought it, it was very impractical like, like most people, but Mahashi says that enlightenment is the most practical thing we can do. And what it is, is basically the fulfillment of human evolution. When we transcend, when we take that time to go within and we experience the source, consciousness, pure consciousness, spirit, whatever we call it, he says it's like dipping a cloth. We dip the cloth in a blue dye, we bring it out, expose it to the sun, and some of that dye fades away, but some of it stays. We dip it in again, take it out, expose it to the sun, and each day we dip it in the cloth, bring it out, and each day that color, the blue color on the cloth, gets a bit more permanent. And eventually it becomes so permanent that we don't need to dip it in the die anymore. He says it's the same with life. We transcend, we take our consciousness, our awareness to the source, that unbounded infinite consciousness that we all have access to. We come back out into daily life. Life gets a little bit better, but we lose some of that 
clarity, some of that unboundedness. Each day we dip in, we dip out. And over time, we create what's called cosmic consciousness. And it's a state of existence where we never lose that unboundedness. We never lose that limitless awareness. 24 hours a day, we're in that state. And it's a completely blissful, happy state of awareness. That is self-realization. We've realized it permanently. That is enlightenment. And Marshi says it's a completely natural state of functioning. So it's, in fact, the most practical thing we can do because when we're in that state, it's like a 24-hour zone state. We're in flow all the time. We naturally do our dharma. We're perfectly uh, integrated or connected with natural law. We do the right thing for our, our own life, but also for those around us. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a beautiful way to close out the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully stated. Mm. Yep. Yeah, so I feel like this kind of ties into what you were just talking about. But really quickly, what advice do you have for us and our listeners on how we can all help make the world a better place? Oh, well, firstly, what a lovely question. And <laughs> yes, you're right. I think we just we just touched on that. In, <laughs> in a sense, in the Vedic wisdom, the best thing we can do for the world is to be selfish, which seems counterintuitive, but... When we talk of the self as the big self, not the ego self, but the self, the deeper consciousness, by getting enlightened ourselves, it's the best thing we can do for the planet. Enlightenment really is just being in the light. When the inner light is turned on, we see things clearly. And for the world to be enlightened, to live this heaven on earth, more of the units, the light bulbs, have to be turned on. So, yeah, being being selfish in terms of taking that time to to transcend, to do our meditation practice, to spiritually grow, to listen to podcasts like this, and uh, the best human beings we can be, then naturally that radiates uh, to the rest of the world. So, uh, yeah, thank yes. you for the great podcast you're doing, and, uh, yeah, may all your listeners uh, enjoy great health and uh enlightenment before long <laughs> thank you mark thank you so much for spending time with us for our listeners you can go to mark bun that's m-a-r-k-b-u-n-n.com.au for more information about mark and his work and you'll find that link in the episode notes as well his book is called ancient wisdom for modern health and it is available on amazon and his podcast is also called ancient wisdom for modern health Mark, thanks again. Yes. Happy holidays to you. And we look forward to having you back after your new book comes out. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much, Steve. And thanks, Aaron. And uh, good health to everyone. Likewise. Thank you. Special thanks to our guest, Mark Bunn. To learn more about him and the work he is doing, you can visit markbunn.com.au. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tampoco. Our music was written and performed by Nadia Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you have a suggestion for a guest or have any ideas on how we can improve our show, please send us an email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com. You can head to our website, betterplaceproject.org, and follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproj for updates on our show. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world.